This podcast is an invitation to feel and experience the souls of famous old Hollywood homes and to have an in-depth journey to the areas where they're located through interviews with longtime residents. Either you're a fan of old Hollywood in Los Angeles, planning to have a vacation, or an even bigger step, considering a certain area for your future home. This is your opportunity to receive valuable information and insightful advice you won't find anywhere else. Hello, hello, and welcome to my podcast. Are you in the mood for California? Today, we'll explore and feel Woodland Hills, followed by an interview with incredible Alan K. Rohde. It is a very nice place to live. Uh, my wife and I have been here quite some time, and we like it very much. You know, it's quiet, which is good. And of course, the director, Michael Curtiz, who I wrote a big biography on several years ago, he had a ranch just down the street, uh, down uh, Ventura Boulevard in Woodland Hills that was upwards of over 900 acres during the 1930s. And this is when a lot of movie stars had ranches in the valley, mm -hmm. when the valley was very rural and there were chicken farms and cantal fields of cantaloupes and orange trees and so forth. And Michael Curtiz had his ranch that had a polo field and guest houses and a skeet shooting range and everything like that. So that certainly had an influence on me in writing about Michael Curtiz. So the valley has a, uh, and specifically Woodland Hills, has a very rich motion picture history. Masha Korpacheva is a California-based realtor and a member of the National Association of Realtors in Los Angeles. She's an advocate for selling and buying homes with soul and practicing mindfulness in real estate. With master's degrees in spiritual psychology and linguistics, Masha brings all of her skills to work with her clients. An intuit and empath, she has touched many lives with her outstanding ability to see beyond the visible and helping to come to better understanding of issues and their resolutions. An adventurous world traveler, from climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania to exploring the Galapagos Islands, Masha has a particular passion for the City of Angels. Having landed in this paradise and adopted it as her home, she's been sharing old Hollywood stories since 2007. In the mood for California, feel the soul of old Hollywood. And now, are you ready to experience Woodland Hills? Once upon a time, in the sun-drenched hills of the San Fernando Valley, there existed a sleepy town known as Gerard. Its dusty streets and makeshift cabins whispered tales of a bygone era where promise mingled with deception under the watchful gaze of the Santa Monica Mountains. Enter Victor Girard, a man of boundless ambition and questionable ethics. With a penchant for grandeur and a knack for swindling, he embarked on a daring venture in the 1920s, aiming to carve his name into the landscape and the annals of history. Girard, or rather, the self-proclaimed human dynamo, envisioned a paradise amidst the rugged terrain, a Moorish-themed utopia 
rising from the ashes of a cow pasture, armed with audacity and other people's fortunes, he set his sights on transforming the barren land into a bustling community of small hillside estates. But Gerard's vision was not without its challenges. The San Fernando Valley, with its agricultural roots and distant location from the city center, seemed an unlikely area for his grand designs. Undeterred, he plunged ahead, his dreams as vast as the sprawling acres before him. With each stroke of his pen and every promise made, Gerard wove a tapestry of deception. False storefronts adorned the streets, concealing the truth behind a facade of prosperity. Yet, amid the smoke and mirrors, something stirred, a sense of possibility, of untapped potential, waiting to be unleashed. As the town of Girard took shape, so too did the legend of its creator. Victor Girard, born Kleinberger, had always been a master of illusion. From peddling fake Persian rugs to charming investors with his wit and guile, he spun tales as effortlessly as he breathed. But as the Roaring Twenties gave way to the harsh reality of the Great Depression, Gerard's empire began to crumble. Lawsuits piled high, debts mounted, and the once thriving community teetered on the brink of collapse. Yet from the ashes of Gerard's folly emerged a phoenix reborn. Renamed Woodland Hills in 1941, the town shed its tainted past and embraced a future of growth and prosperity. Trees planted by Gerard himself stood as silent witnesses to the passage of time, their branches reaching towards a brighter tomorrow. And though Victor Gerard's legacy may be tinged with deceit and betrayal, his vision endures, a testament to the unwavering spirit of those who dare to dream, even in the face of adversity. For in the heart of Woodland Hills, amidst the whispering trees and winding streets, lies the legacy of a visionary scoundrel who defied the odds and carved his own path through history. And here we are. Welcome to Woodland Hills. I am so thrilled to have Alan K. Rohde here with me. Alan K. Rohde is an American film scholar and preservationist, cinema host, producer, charter director, and treasurer, of the Film Noir Foundation and a co-host of the Noir City, Hollywood and Chicago Film Festivals. He has been the producer and host of the annual Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival in Palm Springs, California since 2008 and has hosted numerous other cinema events. In addition to his many filmed interviews of Hollywood artists, he has produced numerous classic film Blu-ray commentaries 
and special features and appeared as a Spotlight co-host on Turner Classic Movies in 2018. Alan is also known for his books, Michael Curtis, A Life in Film, Charles McGraw, Biography of a Film Noir Tough Guy, and Blood on the Moon. Alan's video interviews with numerous Golden Age of Hollywood personages can be found on his website, www.alankrody.com, and the Film Noir Foundation's video archive, his blog, One Way Blog, and writing and interviews for a variety of publications have been supplemented by his commentaries and featurettes on numerous Blu-ray and DVD classic film releases. Alan will share with us what it feels like to live in Woodland Hills. Hello, Alan. Hello, Maria. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? If I was having any more fun, I wouldn't know what to do. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Oh, my God, Alan. It is such an honor to have you on my podcast, and I was really looking forward to speaking with you today. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to it, too, and uh, I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad that your podcast is not just about movies, which is or my books or classic Hollywood, but it has has a, uh, a Los Angeles flavor, which I think is very interesting. So uh, I'm looking forward to our discussion. Yes, yes. Well, how can you disconnect Los Angeles from movies? It's just, you know, it's just one and the same thing. It's it's kind of all blended together. And it's the same as your personal life, because you have so many multifaceted roles in classic Hollywood that it's hard to disconnect your personal life from movies as well. <laughs> no, movies, uh, movies are are a, a big part, have been a big part and continue to be a big part of my life. So, um, yeah, I can't, uh, it's hard to separate one from the other. That's certainly true. Right, right. And yet you live in Woodland Hills and maybe uh, you would like to describe this area to someone who has never been there. What vibe does this area exude? Well, Woodland Hills has a, a very interesting history. It's out in the, uh, the Northwest Valley and back in the day, it was called Gerard, which was the surname of a rather unscrupulous land speculator. For those of your listeners who have seen the movie Chinatown mm -hmm. and the fictional story about how the valley was bought up and so on and so forth. Well, this is when um, they were selling uh, tracts of real estate out here. And the guy's name was Gerard, and he ended up being sued because uh, the land he was selling was misrepresented and so on and so forth. And in 1941, since there was a community out here, they renamed uh, the area Woodland Hills. One of the other connections with Woodland Hills, one of the many connections of Woodland Hills in the movie industry, is that Harry Warner had his ranch out here. Hmm. He had a thousand acres right where, partially where Warner Center is today. Today with uh, shops, movie theaters, and so on and so forth, right where uh, Topanga Canyon Boulevard runs through the center of Woodland Hills. So you have the Harry Warner legacy. And then, of course, they had something called the Warner Ranch Facility, which was not, not the ranch facility in Burbank near the Warner Brothers studio. 
But this was out in Woodland Hills and also in what is now Calabasas. And they had standing outdoor sets of a Spanish town and a Western street and films like uh, Robin Hood and Dallas and Charge of the Light Brigade and Stalag 17 were all filmed out here. Mm -hmm. And of course, Right up the street from me, and I'm in the western part of uh, Woodland Hills, is the Motion Picture Home that was founded in 1914 when the actor Gene Hirschalt uh, decided that, uh, along with some other people in the industry, that the industry needed to take care of his own and bought up land and the motion picture. So uh, Woodland Hills has this rich history of being associated with the movie industry. And now you have, uh, you know, stores, there's libraries, everything is very close, but yet it still maintains a certain uh, suburban flavor of the valley, which is really, really good. Right. It is a very nice place to live. Uh, my wife and I have been here quite some time and we like it very much. You know, it's quiet, which is good. And of course, the director, Michael Curtiz, who I wrote a big biography on several years ago, he had a ranch just down the street, uh, down uh, Ventura Boulevard in Woodland Hills that was upwards of over 900 acres during the 1930s. And this is when a lot of movie stars had ranches in the valley, mm -hmm. when the valley was very rural and there were chicken farms and fields of cantaloupes and orange trees and so forth. And Michael Curtiz had his ranch that had a polo field and guest houses and a skeet shooting range and everything like that. So that certainly had an influence on me in writing about Michael Curtiz. So the Valley has a, uh, and specifically Woodland Hills, has a very rich motion picture history. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know what? Because you're a historian, because you have so much curiosity about classic Hollywood, it truly uh, sounds like you have created a whole world for yourself in Woodland Hills that you're sharing right now. And it is so beautiful. Well, yeah, I uh, I mean, there's places now that some of the places I, I like to go in Woodland Hills. My friend David Kay has a book and memorabilia store that is by uh, Fulb on Ventura Boulevard by the intersection of Fallbrook and Ventura Boulevard. And uh, David sells first editions and all kinds of books. And uh, I collect certain books and David's a good friend. And there's all kinds of people that come into this bookstore, including some movie people, actors, other people. And a lot of times I'll just hang out there and I've told David all he needs is a liquor license. <laughs> <laughs> and he can open a bar because I'll sit in there and have conversations with people from all walks of life. And so I spend a lot of time there. Another place that I'm I'm very fond of is uh, on Fallbrook Avenue, Jim's Country Market that was there in 1951 when I believe Fallbrook was still a dirt road at that point. Mm -hmm. Jim's Market has fresh fish every day. And for those uh, of your audience who are carnivores, they also have Harris Ranch organic meat and really, really good meat and fish of the quality you don't find at your local chain grocery store. Mm -hmm. I'm a purveyor of that. And then, of course, the local library. You have a Woodland Hills library up on uh, Ventura Boulevard, and you also have one here almost in West Hills by Platte Avenue. Mm -hmm. So, And you, you have any manner of shops and, and different things. So it's really uh, kind of a self-contained world as the valley now has become, I think, the last orange grove in the valley is being subdivided, which is mm -hmm. up on, I think it's in Tarzan.
Susanna up on the western side, up on the hill. And they tried to save it, but they couldn't. So uh, it's a bit of history because the valley used to be all uh, very, very uh, agricultural and rural and bridal paths and everything. And in fact, my mother, who was born in Hollywood 101 years ago, her uncle used to own the land by the Chatsworth Reservoir. Mm. So my aunt and my mother, when they were kids, my grandmother would take them out to Uncle Roy's and they would ride horses. And he had cabanas that he rented to people. And some of the guests included John Barrymore and W.C. Fields. And they had goats and a chimpanzee roaming around. <laughs> That's incredible. A lot of stories. So so I have a, I have a family connection with the Valley going back into the 1930s as well, even though I grew up in New Jersey. So yeah, it, it's, it has a unique charm and uh, a unique vibe for me. Wow. And what a special memory of your mother and her childhood and you remembering her and what she experienced is still alive, you know, the way you're sharing it as well. And it looks like it does bring a lot of inspiration into your life. You know, it's just so, so very touching. Oh, yeah. Well, I was I was very close to my mother and um, she made it almost to 94 and uh, kind of uh, I feel the same way that Frank Sinatra felt about his mother, where uh, a friend of Sinatra's asked him to talk to his mom or something. And Sinatra said, a day doesn't go by where I wish I could have another phone call with my mom. And I feel the same way. But she was a big influence in my life and certainly her side of the family growing up in Hollywood and being involved in the film industry and so on and so forth. I think I have a lot of that in my DNA. Right, right. And it must have also influenced your life because, you know, you are so, so, you know, fully living in classic Hollywood. And, and probably through that, uh, you feel a connection with your mom as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm not much for self-psychoanalysts, but, but you're probably right. <laughs> So, Ellen, as a biographer, you have classic Hollywood films, you know, influencing your approach to capturing the lives of notable uh, figures. Maybe there are some specific films that, um, you know, have shaped your narrative style. Would you like to share, like, the names of those films? I don't think there's any films that actually shape my narrative style, because writing biographies and writing books is a completely different skill set than uh, writing a screenplay play or a movie. But certainly being close to a lot of this history uh, has has influenced me. And, and I spoke of the influence of having Michael Curtiz's ranch, and I've been to his, his old house up there. And excuse me, and that certainly was an influence. The first book I wrote on the Charles McGraw, I actually tracked down the house that he sadly passed away in in 1980 and discovered that the woman who owned the house at that time still lived there and had been Charles McGraw's girlfriend. Wow. I did some research, which is very hard to do. But back in those days, you could get death certificates and you could look online and figure out how long somebody had owned a house and all this other stuff. So long story short, I ended up becoming friends uh, with a woman named Millie Black. And uh, that introduced me to a whole Charles McGraw's daughter, uh, his some of his stuntman friends, uh, uh, a fellow by the name of Bobby Hoy, who was a uh, stuntman actor actor and a good friend of, of McGraw's who was he was kind of like Charlie's little brother actually mm -hmm. that kind of opened up a whole world of how Studio City and the environs used to 
would be back in the 1950s, into the early 60s, and so forth. And that set me on the path of writing uh, because I had already had a couple careers as a uh, aerospace general manager. And before that, I was uh, in the U.S. Navy and was an officer in the Navy and so forth. So uh, uh, the whole experience with Charles McGraw really set me on the path to what I do now. Mm. Again, this is uh, this was the influence of the San Fernando Valley. Mm. So you were more influenced actually by the location rather than by a specific movie. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, specific movies attracted me to the people I wrote about. Uh-huh. I mean, Michael Cortese's movies are kind of like the history of the first half of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. This is someone that made his first film in 1912, his last one in 1961. And in between, he made, he directed Casablanca, Yankee Doodle Dandy, Mildred Pierce, The Breaking Point, Angels with Dirty Faces, Captain Blood, The Seahawk, The Seawolf. I mean, Michael Curtiz was Warner Brothers and helped establish the brand of Warner Brothers films beginning in the late 20s when he got here in 1926 all the way until 1954. Mm. Watching his movies, I was always taken by the vitality, the camera movement, the energy and the professionalism of his movies. And I wanted to find out more about the man. And I did to the tune of six years and 700 pages. Oh, (laughs) my God. Wow. So certainly his work and his movies had a a profound influence to the point of writing a, a big biography about him. Wow, that's incredible. What a great story. So, Alan, you have also conducted numerous filmed interviews with Hollywood artists. Maybe there is a particular interview that stands out to you as memorable or impactful, and why? Well, it's hard to pick out one, but most of these interviews, the filmed interviews that are on my website, occurred at my uh, film noir festival in Palm Springs, which in 2024 will be celebrating its 25th anniversary. Congratulations. Wow. It's called the Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival. And that's named after the festival founder, who was a crime novelist and my good friend, Arthur Lyons. And I started working with Art back in, I think, 02, the second year when he was doing this. And then Arthur sadly passed away in 2008. And I took over producing and hosting the festival and bringing in guests and so on and so forth. And it's uh, it's been built into a world-class event. And I'm very, it's really a sweet spot for me. But uh, one interview that I specifically remember very well is in 2010, I think it was, I had Ernest Borgnine come out and uh, I showed a movie of his where his name was above the title, but it had often been overlooked and it was called Pay or Die about the true story of a uh, Italian police lieutenant who fought the black hand in Little Italy in New York around the turn of the 20th century. The, the character's name was Lieutenant Joseph Petrosino. So it was kind of a a dramatic uh, fact-based movie and Borgnine was the star and he loved the movie and no one ever showed it so I called his publicist and he said you know I think he may like this and about a half
half hour later, I got this call and there's Borgnine. Alan, this is Ernie. I understand you are a swabby too. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and it was like we were old friends. And he came out to the festival and we had a lunch that went on for five hours the day before. And everyone was taking their turns. And I had uh, John Garfield's daughter there and a bunch of other people. And we were sitting around a big table at the Hilton and everyone took turns telling stories, including uh, Ernie. Bo Hopkins and Ernie had been friends since uh, they made the Wild Bunch together in 1969. So Borgnine was going to bring his wife Tova, and at the last minute, he said, okay, I gotta, I gotta, I'm going to come down with Bo. Uh, Tova can't make it. So I took the flowers from Tova's hotel room, and I put them in June Lockhart's uh, hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> she was my other guest. But at any rate, between Bo Hopkins and Ernie and all the people at lunch, I wish I had had a camera hit because the stories, uh, some of which can't be repeated here. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're, we're just, uh, it was a really, really memorable event. And then that night we had the premiere and we had a Rolls Royce pull, uh, take Ernie to the theater. And, you know, they had lights there and TV stations and I'm there to greet him. And the car pulls up and the door opens and out comes my wife. And I go, what are you doing here? <laughs> and he said, Ernie just grabbed me and said, come on, kid, you're coming with me. <laughs> So we showed the movie. It was sold out. He and I had a great talk about stuff. And then we had a reception afterwards and he was waiting in a long food line. And I said, Ernie, you don't have to wait in line. And he said, Alan, this is the way I get to meet people. This, these people pay my salary. And, uh, so we hung out until around midnight and he got up. He said, kid, I got to go. So he went. And then the next morning at the hotel, I got up early with a pair of shorts and flip flops to buy the local Desert Sun to see what they wrote about us. And there's Borgnine in the lobby dressed with a sport jacket on signing an autograph for some young soldier. And I go, Ernie, where are you going? He said, oh, there's this race car I want to go look at. <laughs> I mean, he was he was in his early 90s and he had more energy than anybody. Oh, my God. He was and, unstoppable. And, <laughs> yeah. And he couldn't have been nicer and more friendly and engaging. And uh, I'll always remember the, those days with uh, the, that, that whole visit with, with Borgnine and him being the guest because he was fabulous. Wow. Wouldn't it be nice if all people were that friendly and nice? <laughs> yeah. Well, I found that most of the most of the celebrities that I used to have to events both here in Hollywood and uh, in Palm Springs, they were all old school and they were all very appreciative of the uh, warmth of the audience and people coming up and talking to them. And, I mean, we used to have people like Mickey Spillane and Marsha Hunt and Norman Lloyd and all these people that, are, that have uh, passed on now. And they were just fabulous. They're just absolutely fabulous. So I, I feel um, uh, I've been very lucky with uh, some of the some, uh, all the people that I've met and then some of them that became very, very close friends of mine as well. So I, I, uh, that's, I consider myself to be very fortunate and lucky. To, to have met so many of these fabulous, talented, and interesting people. Oh, that's beautiful, beautiful. And uh, you have already mentioned the Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival in Palm Springs that you host. But besides this festival, you also host um, Noir City festivals in Hollywood and Chicago. And all of these um, experiences must be really special. In your opinion, what is the essence or maybe distinctive vibe of these festivals? 
festivals and how have they evolved over the years? Well, the whole uh, Noir City thing started when Dennis Bartok invited Eddie Muller to host in 1999 at the Egyptian Theater what was called the first annual festival of film noir. And I met Eddie at that time and uh, we became friends and then colleagues in that we tried to get different movies to show at the Castro Theater for the what was called Noir City. And we had trouble getting movies because the prints weren't available. So we recognized the need. And so Eddie founded the Film Noir Foundation. And what the Film Noir Foundation does is find films that have fallen into the cracks uh, that are MIA, for lack of a better term, and then clearing the rights to those these films, which is really a tricky business that's too long to even get into here. And then we, we either make prints and now digital restorations, and then we show them at our festivals, which now include... Uh, Hollywood, Chicago, Philadelphia. We had Austin for a while, um, Boston that we have in different cities, including my festival in Palm Springs. And we sell our merchandise. Uh, the Film Noir Foundation takes contributions. We have a fund for um, endowing young film archivists and restorationists. And we have a long-established partnership with the UCLA Film and Television Archive that's our go-to person uh point person for film restoration, and uh, also the Flickr Alley, which takes the films that we make and then puts them out on Blu-ray, because not everyone lives near where a Noir City Festival is. And we produce all the special features and interviews and documentaries that go on these discs. So I'm really proud and uh, happy about the work that the foundation has done over the last 20 years. And it continues, and we're going to have the 25th anniversary of Noir City. City Festival in Hollywood, mm-hmm. 2024 in March. And it's also going to be, I think, the 40th anniversary of the American Cinematheque. Yes. So we're going we're gonna to have some special things planned for that. And the Egyptian Theater was our home until it got closed for refurbishment and COVID and all of that. But now that's all over, as we saw when you and I met at the Spartacus screen yes. weeks ago. So uh, we're looking forward to all that. But I think the uh, to go back to your original question, the film noir found Foundation, our mission is to restore America's noir heritage. And I think we've done a damn good job of doing that. And it's ongoing because really film noir is kind of a connective umbilical to a new generation and mm. classic, classic Hollywood and classic film. Because even though people, uh, younger people may be taken aback a little bit on why do men wear hats like that? Why are doctors smoking in a maternity ward? Right. <laughs> from the 1940s, the basic premise of uh, human emotions and foibles of lust, larceny, and and all the other things, uh, people haven't changed that much. And I think the stories still compel a wide audience people, because let's face it, there's going to have to be another generation that is going to have to continue to watch and try and save these films. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that's the audience that we're building, or they're in the audience that 
we've built. Wow, such an honorable mission. And I love how you said that it was an umbilical connection. And, uh, you know, I don't think anything ever goes anywhere. You know, we're all interconnected. And uh, the films uh, that we can see that were made so many years ago, and the films that you revive and bring to the audiences with the help of your foundation are so magnificent. And they're so valuable for us to continue to feel this connection with the past and continue to make everything in our life, whatever we do, better. Well, hopefully, hopefully what you've just said is is accurate because uh, I don't think that you can learn from the past and take what's good from the past and apply it to the future going forward without being knowledgeable and appreciative of those, particularly in the area of film, those artists and craftsmen and actors and so forth that came before that came before us. Yes. So I think that um, there's certainly respect there, but more than respect, there's appreciation because the films still hold up and they still resonate. And hopefully that'll continue for generations and generations. I mean, a film like The Adventures of Robin Hood, I think 100 years from now, people will be watching that film and enjoying it because if you see it, it doesn't date. Yes. It's based on a legend. It's, you know, it's based on historical fantasy. So it, it doesn't get too old. Uh, and, and there's a lot of films like that, a lot of classic films like that, that I think um, audiences need to be exposed to. Yes, and it's the foundation of what we are creating today. You know, all the classic films were made with such a mindful approach that if we let go of it, it's like letting go of the foundation, you know, and what can you build without it? Exactly. So, Alan, thank you so much for this incredibly insightful and witty and, you know, historically filled uh, conversation today. Uh, I really, really appreciate you taking the time. And um, you're just an incredible very knowledgeable and a very friendly person and i'm very grateful uh to know you well i thank you i'm i'm all these compliments i'm like um i'm i'm ready to strut sitting down <laughs> so i i i appreciate your kind words maria and i thank you for inviting me i've enjoyed our conversation very much and i hope that your audience does as well yes i hope so too and thank you for everything that you do alan all the best to you oh thank you and you too maria thank you so much Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for tuning in to feel and experience Woodland Hills with my special guest, Alan K. Rohde. If you enjoy my podcast, In the Mood for California, please sign up for future episodes at your preferred platform and please leave your feedback. I really appreciate your time and support. You can follow me on Instagram at In the Mood for California and check out my website www.inthemoodforcalifornia.com. I'm a realtor with Beverly and Company Luxury Properties, and my license number is 019-78714. Selling and buying homes with soul is not just my real estate strategy. It is an intuitive and holistic approach that embraces your values, aspirations, and conscious intentions. 
If you want to discover the power of mindfulness in your real estate journey with my compassionate guidance, I'm here for you. Next time, prepare yourself for an enchanting journey to Palm Springs, where history comes alive. Get ready to immerse yourself in the captivating and delicious tales of the past. Cannot wait to have this experience with you. In the mood for California, feel the soul of old Hollywood 